Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode three of the What's Their Wired podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Fiona Albury-Smith, who is a strategic uh, educational consultant, lecturer, researcher, award-winning teacher and leader, and also director of One Life Learning. Hi, Fiona. Hello. Hi, Darren. It's great to be with you this morning. Thank you very much for joining me. I know how busy you are um, and, and it's it's great to connect. I've been wanting to have you as a, as a guest on the podcast for a long time and things have conspired against us. But now seems like a really um, opportune moment to to kind of get into that. And uh, we had the benefit of, of sharing some time together on Friday of last week at the LGFL Let's Assemble um, conference, which was which was fantastic. And I'm sure we'll get into uh, some of the topics that were raised there as we move along but just to get us started really for those people who, who who don't know you can you give us a little bit of uh, background about yourself your own education and, and how you got to where you are now mm, sure thank you and um so where do I start really so I um I went through school and college as as, as one would I was uh, first generation to go to university in my family so that was quite a, a big deal my brother and I um, and my first degree is actually in music. It's nothing to do with technology or education um, at all. That's just something I really enjoyed at the time. Um, but when I finished my music degree, I was really, really interested in a really niche area um, of music. It's called um, Schenkirin Analysis. And it's de- it sounds really dull now. It's deconstructing music to mathematical structures. Um, and that was probably okay. a pivotal, pivotal moment because it was all about how these big kind of ethereal things that, uh, that affect us um, you know, things like hearing music and, and auditory stuff um, are actually broken down into quite small component parts that you can understand. So that's where my interest, weirdly, in education um, began from. So I, after uh, finishing that, I went and did some postgraduate study looking at music theory and analysis and understanding that a bit more. And I got really interested in the ways in which we respond as human beings to the sounds that we hear and to music. And that took me into classrooms Um, and thinking about how music affects what children do and how they feel and how they behave and how they respond to different kinds of stimulus. And it was like, oh, wow, this stuff that I just thought was music we listened to actually can make a massive impact on children's learning. Um, And I was really excited by the research around that. I had a very sort of academic hat on at that time. But I was very kind of dubious about being in an academic environment where research was happening almost to justify the next piece of research it's like well actually it's only any use if we're actually doing something with it mm-hmm. so when I to train to become a teacher it was actually so that I could be in situ researching with children in the classroom um right from the outset um mm-hmm. and so then, you know did a did a PGC moved into teaching absolutely loved every second of it um and then moved through various um teaching and leadership roles um, and then moved sort of accidentally into a kind of advisory and consulting space and then uh, a bit later on into lecturing. But it's always been with this fascination of what are these things that we can do to better understand how children and young people are learning and, and why they do the things they do as part of their learning. It's a fascinating space, isn't it? It's something I know mm. you're interested in. Um, yeah. Too. It's fascinating you, you you talk about you know music and that mathematical link because I, I, I've oh well I, I suppose I shouldn't be surprised but um, I kind of when I came into teaching I was really surprised by the number of maths teachers that were very musical and the number of musical teachers that were very mathematic and there's there's a definite link there I think that that really kind of talks and and as a linguist myself 
it, it kind of links in quite nicely because I kind of think of uh, maths have been, obviously everyone talks about maths being a, a universal language, um, but music as well. Take the lyrics to one side and music itself. Um, it is very much about rhythm and flow and, and stimulation and everything else. So I, I, I find that, that really fascinating. Did you, um, did you get drawn into teaching any maths as, as part of your career or was it purely the music side of things? No, no. Well, I've, I've, I've never particularly taught music. In an actual oh. fact, when I was, um, so I was a primary teacher, um, so I didn't right. have a particular subject specialism um, per se. But I never enjoyed teaching music at all. It was right. <laughs> it was terrible. Okay. It's always the the use of music, and you know, a little yeah. sort of aside, fun fact: every piece of music um, you can strip it right back. Um, to a five note sequence you know five note descending scale or a three note descending scale and everything that hangs off that is all about as you say patterns and rhythms and you know repetitions and things like that and I think that that's why it becomes really interesting because when we look at what children are learning we often talk about breaking things down into component parts mm. and how they link together and, and ultimately I, I wonder if you look at any subject actually there's a lot of commonalities that you know you talk about that with with language and how you um, you know, deconstruct language in order to understand it and then reconstruct it. Absolutely, yeah. And it's, it's frustrating in a way, isn't it, that quite often in schools we spend a lot of time, you know, we'll often have sort of CPD all together as a group uh, and quite often you'll have CPD together as a, as a department. But that cross-curricular kind of CPD or cross-departmental CPD isn't isn't that commonplace. I'm sure there are people out there that are doing it, but I think it's fascinating to be able to look at things through that that alternative lens where you've got similar approaches, but with a completely different outcome uh, and actually learn from each other in terms of, you know, what might work because, you know, I, I've often said it, teaching is a very lonely profession. If you're, you know, a, a full-time teacher, you know, 25 lessons a week in the classroom, give or take, um, you might not get outside of your classroom door all day on some days, not see another adult between entering the building and leaving the building, um, let alone get the opportunity to see what other people are doing in the classroom. And, and mm. saw some really interesting um, um, comments on, on Twitter earlier on in the week, actually, where um, I think it was Laura, Laura uh, McInerney was, was looking at um, the kind of correlation between teacher PPA in terms of currently being around 10% and what would happen if you made that 20%? What would happen if you gave teachers suddenly 10% extra time? Mm. You know, obviously they'd have more time to do the marking and the prep and everything else, but, but there'd also be more time to go and see each other. There'd be more collaborative opportunities because more people would have um, free periods or PPAs at the same time as each other. Mm -hmm. um, but, but also, you know, people would have less classes, so they'd have more, input and more knowledge of those individuals and it's obviously you've got to balance the books as well and it's not an easy thing to do but that that collegiate kind of cross-departmental work I think is so vital and and we need to as schools find ways of facilitating that um Thanks. in a way that doesn't and, and you know very challenging times to, to be able to do that so we, we really do um have to think outside the box or or to, to quote Dan Fitzpatrick, think in the third box. Um, yes, absolutely. A really interesting concept that, that came up on, on Friday at the LGFL conference. Um, and, and I thought that was 
it comes back to what you were saying, you know, stripping things down to, to three steps or five steps. Actually, what a really nice visual uh, way of explaining, you know, most of us live in box one. Some of us do a little bit of work around box two, but, but don't let go of the things that we shouldn't be doing. And how much of our time do we go into box three and really think about those those big life-changing and experience-changing opportunities. So He explains it really well, doesn't he? It's a really good does, yeah. way of conceptualising what's going on. And there's so much that we can learn from and, and with each other. You know, there's there's a, a really interesting kind of subset of research around um, teachers and why we choose the subjects we choose and why mm. we choose to work with the age groups of students that we choose to work with. Um, and okay. those ideas around what we think it means to be a teacher um, and, and what learning looks like really affecting and taking us in particular directions. Um, and the reason I mention that is because actually then when we think about who we're learning with and which colleagues we interact with and the sorts of conversations we have, it becomes really important because if we only ever talk to teachers that teach the same subject in the same age range, the focus is going to be more on content and subject knowledge or subject pedagogical knowledge maybe um, yeah. and by kind of broadening that out and engaging in those kinds of big teaching and learning conversations with colleagues from different very different departments or very different age ranges it it forces the common thread of conversation to be about learning and the process of learning and you know those bigger picture ideas that are the things that actually really challenge us and our own thinking and make mm. us more reflective as practitioners so you know absolutely that box three stuff is where we need to be investing more time definitely and and as you say in those conversations as well this they're, they're so important but they they do tend to be the first thing that that gives way when budgets are tight and and you know people are off sick and lessons need covering and that opportunity to sit down and chat just doesn't necessarily arise very easily so all the more important that we find opportunities to do that in school but also through you know opportunities like podcasts and things like that where we can hopefully stimulate people's thinking you know we haven't got all the answers but but if it makes people go away and think about their answers um th then that's that's really Absolutely. important from my perspective and in terms so, of building sorry darren no go on carry on i'm just gonna say in terms of kind of building new understandings and new forms of knowledge you know if we draw on something like ideas around dialogic pedagogy it's the interaction between people whether it's over the you know the so-called water cooler conversations or the sorts of chats we're, we're having now, for example, those kind of exchanges of ideas trigger different types of thought processes to start in our own minds. And, you know, that's really powerful stuff, isn't it? And, and with our students as well, you know, we learn so much from the students that we teach, don't we? And if oh. we're open to it, we can learn probably more from them than they will ever learn from us. So, you know, interactions, it's just about that, as you rightly say, and in your brilliant book, um, you know, as you rightly say, it's about being open to who we can learn from and who we can mm. learn with, and, you know, shifting away from some of those old models about, you know, Twilight's insets all the time, just being open. Yeah, and, and you know, that old outdated expectation of, you know, the teacher has to be the, the font of all knowledge at the front of the room and shouldn't be challenged, shouldn't be questioned and, and yeah. should know everything as, as long on, particularly in a primary setting where the curriculum is so vast, actually learning to embrace the fact that you can learn so much from other people is, is really important. And um, for want of a better word, quite cathartic. I think yeah, yeah. When, when you embrace that, it takes a huge amount of pressure off, I think. Um, 
but also, you know, student pupils are, are, are so honest about. Well, they just <laughs> exactly that, that. There's no there's no deliberate bias in there. Yeah. You know, and that's what I like about it. You know, they'll 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 say something and they'll share something because they they've seen it, they've read it, they've heard it, or they believe it for whatever reason. But they're very open to having conversations around it. Whereas as we get to adults, we're much more likely to kind of shut down and go, "Well, I don't agree with that, and, I, and I'm not prepared to listen." You know? Yeah, and we we do a disservice to our young people um, if we don't embrace that. So if we if we are giving them a classroom environment where knowledge comes from the teacher or knowledge comes from a resource or even from a set of three resources that we give them. What we're actually saying to them is knowledge is a held by other people and, and it's kind of gifted to you, you know, like a yeah. something that you like a dog treat almost, isn't it? Um, and second, that knowledge is always created by someone else somewhere else that's on mm. this kind of um you know, stage or, you know, box or held up high or whatever. And and that takes out of our young people's minds the ideas that they can create knowledge, that knowledge, yeah. I mean, what is a fact? It's a collectively agreed opinion, right? And facts yeah. change the more we understand about what, what sits around those pieces of information. And that's the stuff that I think our youngest learners, primary and secondary age students, are actually way, as you rightly say, Darren, they're much better at us than grappling with that and being yeah. comfortable with being uncomfortable about not knowing the answers, not knowing, you know, how something works or why something is the way it is. But to keep asking, you know, why is this? What's going on? How do we know that? You know, to quote Neil, mm. where's the evidence that that is a particular, um, yeah. you know, particular idea or theory? It's um, to, to, to quote someone, uh, you know, what's, what's the why? You know, that's the, that's the thing we need to be keeping, isn't it? All the time. Why, 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 why? Yeah. It's really interesting, you know, you, you mentioned that as well, because, looking at you know conversations I have with with friends and colleagues and and people in my kind of circle of of, of interest and everything else through social media and you know real life for want of better words um I do I do wonder whether the kind of the the educational experience we've gone through in 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 this generation my generation sort of mid mid 40s if you like whether that's a contributing factor to the amount of imposter syndrome that's that's out there um that that people really don't have confidence in their own stance their own belief their own knowledge as you say to then go and share it because they're frightened they're going to get shut down or they, someone's going to say you're wrong you know well it's, it's interesting to kind of unpack the kind of research behind that because there's plenty of research that it entirely supports exactly what you're saying which is we've been brought up in a environment which says that learning stuff and then regurgitating i can't speak regurgitating stuff um, in tests or exams whether they're in class or at the end of periods of time um and then being evaluated or valued based on the outcomes of those that's a very behaviorist um information processing set of beliefs that underpin that and it's moved ever so slightly from from perhaps when we were at school to a slightly more um individual individual constructivist model where it's about each of us being helped to understand some agreed theories or ways of working so you know we learn i don't know pythagoras theorem or whatever it might be and the teacher will help us to understand what they believe pythagoras theorem is and when yep. we've got uh, their understanding we kind of pass go and go on to the next bit you know it's that sort of sequential stepwise series of gates opening however you want to think of it 
Um, mm. But that's the system that we've come through. Now, what are the embedded belief systems in that? It's that knowledge matters more than person. It's that everyone can believe, access and regurgitate knowledge in the same kinds of ways. And that it places that intrinsic, like where's the value there? The value is on knowing stuff, being able to perform stuff. Now, there, there are times and places for those kinds of ideas. But, you know, if we just fast forward and come into that kind of the AI immersed world that we're now in, knowing stuff, actually, that's the easy bit, isn't it? It's all, where's the human value add on top of that? Um, and that's going to be around interactions between people. It's challenging things. It's looking for ideas that don't make sense or don't work. It's applying one idea in a completely different context, coming up with new ways of thinking. It's about understanding the... We used to call it community of practice, but understanding the community of purpose that you want to be part of and understanding how you learn what you need to learn to be part of that particular community. That And that might be knowledge. It might be ways of working. It might be, you know, particular etiquette or particular manners or particular you know ways of behaving with people. But it's a totally different knowledge set, isn't it? And it's very it and flexible and requires you to look at where you want to be not to where you want to get to in terms of attainment or outcomes, but where you want to be. And then how can you enable yourself to be part of that? How can you enable others to be part of that and, and commune together? Absolutely. And, and you know, for, for those of us that are, are not part of that same generation, and you can see it in day-to-day -day life on the news and, and social media everywhere else, you know, it's very difficult to, to let go of the fact that you, what you learn when you were at school as knowledge and fact actually might no longer be true yeah, yeah, yeah. um and, and to have that challenged is, is very very uncomfortable for a lot of people as we're seeing with you know i hate the term cancel culture because I, you know i don't agree i don't agree with the fact that things are being cancelled i think think we're being you know we're having our eyes opened to different perspectives on events and things yeah. that have happened in the past um but but that's a very important perspective to have because the so-called knowledge that we learn was a very biased opinion as, as i can't remember who, who the quotes by but you know history is written by the victors i was um, just gonna think this exactly same thing and it but it's really important isn't it because mm any any recording of something an event or a perception or recollection is is one person's recording you know there's no such thing as reality is there if we go we go a bit abstract for a moment you know we, yeah. <laughs> you and i and anyone you know joining us today we will all take three very different experiences from this one um mm. you know one podcast and therefore when we talk about what happened whose version of what happened are we talking about and how would we understand how would we make sense of that for ourselves as individuals is entirely based on our own history. We are an accumulation of everything that's come before us. And I think we just have to, for us as educators and for our role in helping others learning, whether they're children or adults, we have to become a bit more comfortable with being uncomfortable about not knowing mm. stuff. And I think historically yeah. to not know something has been seen as a as a weakness or as a failing in like there's a deficit mindset around not knowing stuff isn't it yeah. whereas actually to recognize we don't know something is hugely empowering because it means we know what we need to start doing next and what we need to find out about so it should be not knowing stuff should actually be celebrated right absolutely yeah as, as long as you develop the skill to then apply 
those skills to find out what you don't know. Yeah, don't um, stay not knowing stuff. <laughs> no, exactly. No. Although in some cases ignorance is bliss. Um, well, not yes, in all cases. Yeah. And as you mentioned, you know, in this, you know, the explosion of AI in education at the moment. Uh, and some fantastic work being done around that by people like Dan Fitzpatrick, Mark Anderson, Rachel Arthur, and, and many others. You know, that ability to be able to express yourself in order to get the right kind of output from that AI, from that AI, I think is is a, is a real skill. And there's been a lot of early kind of um, panic, if you like, about we need to ban it because of cheating and all this kind of thing, which are personally I think is ridiculous yeah. um but but there's also been that kind of fear that well this is going to ruin literacy completely uh, because people aren't going to write anymore and I just think actually if anything personally I think it's going to improve literacy levels because if you don't ask in the right way you know it you know the AI model is a database effectively you know simplifying things and if you don't ask the right questions in the right way, giving it the right prompts using um, Dan Fitzpatrick's prep approach or, or Mark Anderson's stare approach, you know, being specific, telling it what you want it to know uh, to the absolute details and then giving it a particular activity or, or set of activities to do, then asking it to kind of iterate that and, and giving it a particular role to play, that, that stare approach does lead to much better outcomes um, much more reliable outcomes, and mm. and actually, in order to express all of that, you've got to have those those higher levels of literacy. Because if we're not clear with the machine what we want it to deliver, the machine isn't clever enough to work out what we're not telling it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Although it's very polite when it gets something wrong. Have you noticed? It's very, very much so. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's clearly a machine with good manners. Yeah, at least some of them are. Some of the, I, you know, there, there was some issue around a couple getting a little bit um, feisty around the responses they were given and things like that. But it, it's only using the content that it's got. It's only using the knowledge that it's got. Exactly the same as us as human beings, but without those those interpersonal connections. So it will make mistakes, and, and that's why it's so important that you know that we check it. We don't just take it word for word we don't take it for granted that everything that is that it's thrown out is, is you know 100 percent um accurate but hugely valuable in terms of just the artwork that i've seen created through things like mid journey and and videos and all those mm -hmm. kind of things just blows my mind and, and i think to myself now i I was very fortunate to be in one of one of our trust schools a couple of weeks ago, and there was some fantastic artwork being done by by one particular student who was sat at the back of the the art class. They set up four computers at the back of the art class in a little section. Each computer had a, a Wacom graphics tablet attached to it, and they were using Photoshop and they were producing some absolutely phenomenal digital art that literally blew me away and I would have, you know, I would have happily handed over the money there and then and say, you know, print me a copy of that or hang that on my wall. It was phenomenal. But then you look at some of the AI generators and what they can do with art, even little things um, like, I'm not forgetting the name of it now. Um, oh my word, what's it called? Now there's one where you can basically just create a scribble. I mean, it might be called scribble. I think it's scribble diffusion com that's it 
um, and you literally just create a scribble. A little bit like using um, Google's Quick Draw, as it was um, a few years ago, which was really popular for games and things like that. And then you just takes your scribble and turns it into the most phenomenal piece of digital artwork, literally in seconds. And I just think to myself, like, that's incredible because from a from a creativity point of view, I know Dan on on Friday, Dan Fitzpatrick mentioned, you know, that that creativity has been democratized that everyone's now got a license to create good quality digital artwork and creative work and things like that. But, you know, just for argument's sake, if I was a tattoo artist, rather than spending two or three weeks maybe designing a, a tattoo design that I was really happy with, I might now go straight into an AI generator and have one that's absolutely fantastic within seconds really that I'm absolutely happy with, or I will just tweak a little bit and, when you look at that in terms of how that can then accelerate people's, you know, work processes, their, their mm -hmm. earning potential, um, the quality of the work they produce and all of those things. It, it's just phenomenal what, what's, yeah. what's possible out there. And, and I think that it's really interesting the way you describe that, because it's it's the the, the technology is giving us a, a, a launch pad, if you like, to then build on that and, and the value add on, you know, what's the what's the gain of the human involvement it's to make sense mm. of that and to, to tweak to finesse to to build on it to, to grow on that and it challenges some really really important points that i think we often take for granted about you know therefore what is art what does it mean to be an artist and mm. you know what is knowledge who defines it where does it come from and if we're thinking about how we utilize all this in the in the classroom with our young people, you know, what does it mean to educate somebody in a context where the information is so easily accessible? Where are we adding value? What are we contributing? And I think it is a kind of question of polarity, isn't it? Because some people, as you know, we were talking about earlier, find that quite threatening, think it might lead to loss of roles or devaluation of certain skills. And others recognize it's just an evolution in terms of what we're doing and how we interact with each other. And I mean, how do you how do you see that the role of educator, of teacher evolve, given this, you know, new kind of AI that we're now seeing in the last couple of months, particularly? Well, obviously, there's so many areas where, where I can see benefits. I think personally, um, obviously, work, workload is a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. right? It, it, phenomenal. I mean, I, I've written a document this morning and a, a Google document. I've written it in about an hour. I, I didn't use chat GPT or anything like that for this particular one, but I've just clicked the summary box in the corner and it's produced a kind of 70 word summary of the entire document so that anyone that's reading it gets that quick synopsis before they go into reading it. Now, I didn't ask it to do it. There was just a button there that says summary. I click it and it does it. And it's done and dusted it's, you know so in terms of accessibility fantastic people know what they're getting before they they dive into it um because you know time is precious i think in the classroom i think the ai gives us all sorts of opportunity particularly with flipped learning for the students to to go away and find things out for themselves um and to a certain extent i think if, we, if you do that and, and you ask students to go out and find things out for themselves, it doesn't matter to a certain extent whether what, what they come back with isn't actually accurate, because I think it's the discussion that's the most important part. And that's that's the human value added that the teacher still gives and will always give um, that the AI can't do. 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, lots of talk about AI is going to remove teachers and replace teachers and all that kind of thing. Absolutely not. I think what we're going to do is, is we're going to have, once we get more used and more skilled at using it, we're going to have more opportunity in lesson to, to discuss uh, and really dive into the content rather than trying to find out the content during the lesson time and then not really having the time to discuss it or saying to people, go away and think about it. And in reality, does that ever happen? You know, if you say to a year seven child, go away and think about the content of this article and talk with your friends at lunchtime while you're having your sandwich. I'm not convinced it happens. I don't know about you. Less likely, certainly. Less likely. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I think it, it, it challenges, to, challenges us also to think about the way that we talk about things. You know, I think the role of questioning, of high quality questioning and different types of questioning is going to become so much more important. I mean, if we take something really simple, like a, a little quiz tool, for example, you know, historically we've had these scenarios where, you know, a child, will, a teacher will set a quiz, children will do the quiz individually, the teacher would mark it, then we moved into, a, you know, a, a different evolution where the marking would be auto-marked, the teacher just saw a list of, you know, who got what and, you know, adjusted the next lesson based on that. And then we've moved into, okay, you do you take part in a quiz of some sort through some kind of adaptive software. It auto-marks and takes you on a particular pathway and the teacher can monitor those pathways. And then we're going to kind of another kind of evolution where it might take you on those pathways, but the conversation around those pathways is ever more important. So, you know, I use a, an example um, I saw in class last week, I think it was, where the students were using, I forget it was Atom or, or Century, um, and they were taking part in these um, activities and seeing their assessments come out of those and being taken off on particular pathways. The teacher wasn't interested in the pathways and the outcomes and the assessments. They were interested, okay, so it's auto-marked for you and told you you're good at this or you need to work on that. What's your one takeaway learning point from having done that particular task? So it's kind of focusing more on that metacognitive approach that the student's going through. You know, it's like, okay, you can read on screen to know what you're good at, what you need to work yep. on next. But what have you actually learned? What's your what's your takeaway? What have you internalized from that experience? And then in the same classroom, there's another group, and they were using the questions and, and who'd got what right and wrong and all the rest of it to evaluate um what sort of questions would we need to ask or what sort of questions would the system ask where there wouldn't be a right answer and where it couldn't auto-mark those? And it really challenges then the sense of, okay, do they really understand the context of the skills and, and the knowledge that they're learning? So I think that role of questioning and, and discussion and really diving deep into how have you internalised your findings mm. is going to be really important not just making sense of them but you know what do they no. mean to you as an individual and how how and where and why would you use those findings it's, it's fascinating isn't it i mean it what sort of conversations do you hear students having around ai with that in mind to be honest at the moment not a huge amount um there, there have been kind of conversations in the past um where they you know understandably were a little bit ahead of the game probably than most teachers um um, and I've had conversation with students where I've said to them, look, this is a fantastic piece of work you've handed in to me. This is this is absolutely brilliant, um, as is the person next to you's piece of work, which is totally different, but seems to be hitting the same sort of points. And then they kind of look at me as if to say, what are you asking? And then I say, 
don't forget, I've got technology that tells me what tabs you've been visiting. I'm using securely in the classroom so I can see all of the tabs you visited during the course of this lesson and all of the tabs your um, neighbour visited during this course of this lesson. And I can see that your neighbour um, didn't access a particular tab, but you access something called Quillbot. Um, and at the point where on your screen your neighbour's work appeared and you copied and pasted it into Quillbot and then it paraphrased it all for you, um, that, that original work that you'd done in your document suddenly changed rapidly and they kind of kind of go, oh, he's, uh, he's got, you've got me there. Yeah. Um, but, but actually, the way I look at it is it's all good for them. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Okay. If it's a controlled assessment or, an, or is an you know an exam piece, absolutely not in the current state of affairs. Although there's no reason why we shouldn't use AI in the future. But actually, if the students are using the technology that's out there to make things accessible for them, um, mm -hmm. and in this particular case I'm talking about, actually, what the students did is they they asked it to um, to paraphrase it in a informal style because oh, they recognise that they would understand it if it was more informal. Yeah. Um, so a different set of skills going on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, if, yeah. If they can ask, um, you know, chat GPT or, or whatever it might be to produce a, an assignment or an essay or an answer, surely the kind of value add that we can provide that is, is we just kind of take that by the horn and say, okay, everyone do that. And then look yeah. at what each has found and what are the differences and why and what is it that is making those differences and what can we learn about the content as a result of looking at the differences between 30 different chat GPT essays based on the same thing? And that's, you know, that's the layer of learning there because they're going to go into a work environment where if they need to know something, you know, they just ask it by voice text, whatever it, it might be. Yeah. So, you know, it's not about not doing, not covering the same content. It's just about how we, how we look on that and how we analyze what they're learning, how they're learning it, why they're learning it, and what they can do with it. That's the really important thing. Absolutely. And, and coming back to your point, you know, I see some of my favourite activities, particularly with exam year groups, were things like, okay, here's a question, here's an answer, create a rubric, create a mark scheme for it. Yeah. You know, how, would, how many bands would you have? what would you include in each band? And actually that really starts to get students thinking about the structure of an answer and what what's kind of low level kind of superficial content and what's the deeper knowledge and everything else. Um, and then to then mark it based on their own criteria it gives them so much more ownership as well. In terms of motivation and engagement, you know, they're deciding what mark they get. And then they really understand the stuff they're learning about, but also, I mean, the powerful messages you're, I mean, I'm, you're a phenomenal teacher, so the, this is immersed in what you do. But the, the other part of that that's maybe not so, so obvious is that the message it's giving to them about what it means to be a learner. And yes, I can make those decisions about my own learning. Yes, I can take the leadership role in how I learn and what I'm looking for. Like Those are lifelong messages that will stay with them way after they've left your class, your school, you know, right into the workplace. Mm. They will have this understanding of, they can take the leading role in their own learning and how empowering is that you know for a life trajectory that's that's the you know what more can we absolutely that that leads us nicely on actually because one of the things i wanted to talk to you about was you know preparing young people for their futures and things like that but i think that's that's one of those aspects that has still got a little bit of work to do certainly in 
not not everywhere, but in a lot of companies, for example, where appraisal and performance management is very much something that's that's done to you and mm-hmm. you're told what you need to achieve by the end of a given period of time and you don't necessarily have um, a lot of say and a lot of choice in what you actually do because there are you know certain criteria that you have to fulfill but I think I think there's going to be a massive change in culture as this generation moves through into the workplace a in terms of the the tools that they're using um, and the approaches that they use but also in terms of their expectations of, of how people around them in an organization are going to deal with them as individuals and I think that's a that's a really positive step forward yeah um, absolutely. and um I say something no it's all right so I was talking to you just before we before we we kind of came on air about um Mark Anderson's um piece at the the OVFL conference around tomorrow's world and the fact that it kind of got me thinking back to the 1980s and Maggie Philbin and, and watching those shows and thinking back then and I, I watched a couple on on YouTube uh, actually I think it was on BBC archive got a, got a site correctly it was on BBC archive um I watched a couple of episodes where they were talking about you know what life would be like in the the 2020s um and you know what they were scarily accurate they really were no, there's, there's still some things that that aren't there um but they were talking about you know just being able to walk into a room and decide on your wallpaper that day uh, and of course with with led um signage and all that kind of thing completely possible total immersive experiences there's no reason why if you've got the money to do it at the moment you couldn't walk into your living room and say jungle please and you just get a jungle environment you know the technology exists um albeit not very affordable um i was very fortunate to go to the the ise in barcelona to see uh, some of the kit that's that's around that's available around the world if you've got a really big budget and uh it's absolutely phenomenal. The, the kind of immersive experiences that you can create are fantastic. But but coming back to that that tomorrow's world point, you know, the the, the advance we've we've made in the last forty years, at the rate we're going, we're probably going to make a similar amount of advancement in maybe five to ten years. The other mm-hmm. side. So, for our, say for example, our year four, year five students at the moment who are maybe going into the workplace in 10, 12 years time, it's going to be a completely different experience to what we know now. Uh, and so therefore really challenging for us to make sure that that we're adequately preparing those students for that future. Um, so I just wonder what your thoughts were on that. Oh, it's such a profound point, isn't it? About, you know, how do we prepare for an, un- an unknown future and kind of the the unknown amount of possibilities of what that might look like. And, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that we can do. And, and indeed, every school is already doing in terms of developing particular types of skills around new forms of literacy and, you know, the increase on focusing on things like coding and different kinds of conceptual skills and a greater focus on metacognition, understanding our own learning, all those kinds of things, you know, very practical, um, sort of straightforward, um, maybe arguably, but straightforward things to, to teach and to learn. But there's a there's another one that's about um, developing a greater sense of identity for our young people and a greater sense of understanding their own agency. And what I mean by that is we have to, it goes back to the point we we're making earlier. We have to be more comfortable with feeling uncomfortable because when the pace of change speeds up, 
we have to be more ready to let go of old ways of thinking and old ways of working. And I think sometimes the things that we've grown up with or the things that we're used to or processes that we're familiar with or expectations that we just kind of understand and conform to, they were right for that period in time, but everything is time bounded. Everything is right mm -hmm. of its moment. Um, and we can only do what we can do in any given day based on the understanding we have from everything we've experienced to that point. So I think just being a bit more um, open and comfortable with, oh, that might not be what I thought it was. Let's follow that. Let's be curious. You know, um, Professor Sanjay Sama talks about this a lot, the importance of curiosity. You know, small children, animals are inherently curious. And I think, you know, keeping, keeping ourselves curious as educators, keeping the curiosity of the classroom, you know, if a something appears in a conversation or something a student says that's completely off piece and nothing related to the to the lesson there's a reason they've just thought that there's a reason it's coming mm. to their head absolutely you know let's let's give them the space the mind space to explore that because for them that's relevant to the lesson that they're in something's triggered the connection and i think mm. sometimes we can be a bit focused like that on this lesson the parameters of what we're doing now and it, it doesn't need more time or more resource or more money. It just means, you know, just being a little bit more open to say, well, what's the connection between, you know, the bird out the window and the formula, the mathematical formula, or whatever you're just working on. What made you think of that? And there'll be a reason. And that might actually help yeah. the lesson that we're covering. So, yeah, that fluidity is important, isn't it? It is. And, and that's the magic of working with young people, isn't it? Like making, like working out where those connections have come from, I find absolutely fascinating um, and hilarious at the same time. Um, and, and I put my hands up. I think I'm guilty of sometimes enjoying those kind of conversations a little bit too much because I want to go down the rabbit hole of my, how on earth did you end up there? Let's and explore that. Where the really exciting bit of learning is, isn't it? I, I'll share with you a very. It was. It will date me somewhat, but I'll share with you a lovely little anecdote. So. Um, I was teaching a year one class when Google Earth first kind of came into the mainstream way of thinking. Um, and so we were exploring this together, looking at it and, we, you know, zoomed out. And you could see the, the moon and all the rest of it. And this five year old, well, I'll never forget. And he looked up at me and said, Miss Reed, as I was thinking, he said, he said um, and I'm fairly sure, Miss Reed, that moon is, is made of cheese. And for that moment, I was sort of thinking, right, OK, where do I take this? And then, of course, to him, the only exposure at that age he'd had in thinking about the moon was Wallace and Gromit. Wallace and, and so Gromit. Was made yeah. of moons, right? We looked at Google Earth. We could talk about, okay, there's there's different kinds of moons, opened his whole conversation about, you know, solar systems and stuff. And how for in, in a story, something can be one way, in you know, um in a in a sort of more physics or scientific environment, things can be another way, and they can both be right at the same time. They're both relative mm. to what we're talking about. And you know, but any any seemingly unconnected thing can open up a conversation that can actually enhance the very thing you're teaching about, if we're all open to kind of receiving that and and yeah, just being a that whole thing about being much much more open. Absolutely, I think you know, as a linguist, I often kind of resort back to to the literacy side of things as well, and the the kind of the etymology of words, I think, is absolutely vital for students to understand. And, and once you do, it's really cool to be able to then question their thinking and, and highlight links that they never had before. And one of the things I used to find as a language teacher was, was quite often students would have difficulty remembering what a word meant. 
Um, but if I went back through the etymology of it and I linked it to different languages and different words from there, we would always find a link. And and quite often we'd, we'd have parts of lessons where we would I, I would challenge the class to find the connection to the English word. Um, so take a word and that, however you do it, find a connection that works for you. Um, again, thinking about that, that cognition and making those connections as well. But actually just giving them the license to say, right, go away and explore. And it doesn't matter if if your way of remembering it is completely different to somebody else's. As long as it works for you, that's what matters, you know. Um, and, and, and the bonus is obviously it improves their vocabulary at the same time. And I think there's a there's a definite link um, that I've noticed over the years of, of those students who study a foreign language to, to at least GCSE tend to do on average at least a grade better in their English language and literacy as a result of it because they've just got that vast more vast vocabulary yeah and that wider understanding of the world as well and it, there's so much is in every word that we use isn't it that I mean we Absolutely. often that when we use different vocabulary different, different words that we mean the same thing and actually when we dig into it sort of a linguistic analysis that you're talking about it's often not necessarily the case even the simple word like um teaching you know if you ask any if you go into any classroom in your in your school at the moment and say what does teaching mean to you you'll get a different answer in every classroom and there'll be themes there'll be trends depending on maybe subjects or how long someone's been in in the teaching profession or you know what their belief systems are or cultural values are whatever but but no one will give you word for word the same answer even for a word like teaching no. that you know is as old as as old as humanity isn't it as a, as a profession <laughs> yeah and and you know you've known me for some time now you know, I, i'm partial to a dad joke um the best so, joke Aaron, the best jokes well absolutely i think so um i went to school especially for them uh, but um i i very often I would turn around to students and, and say something like to them, oh, by the way, your homework was outstanding. Or your homework, sorry, your homework is outstanding. And they go, they'd look at me blankly and go, I didn't, didn't do it. And I go, no, exactly, it's outstanding. And they'd still look puzzled. And, and you know, things like that just fascinate me. It's like, why Offset ever chose to use the word outstanding when it has such two diverse meanings god only knows and the, the quicker they let's not go down that rabbit hole but, <laughs> but, that, but, it, but it shows the importance of of precise communication in the classroom yeah. doesn't it because you know if that one word can mean two totally different things what yeah. else is it we're saying when we talk to our students when we talk to each other where we're mm. taking two different totally different meanings from it and you know, precision and clarity is just so, so, so important, isn't it? Yeah, and and often we're assuming that our audience is taking the same connotation that we're intending, and that's not always the case. You know, no, and more often not. <laughs> no, absolutely. No, it's no, it's fascinating. I mean, I was I was reading a a blog online the other day just about sort of careers that that might or, or potentially already do exist and. The opportunities there and and the things that even five years ago i wouldn't have even imagined but um one of the the topics that came up was um necrobotics which absolutely i was like whoa no way absolutely but actually looking at the real 
scientific benefits of being able to take something that's deceased, fuse it with robotics, and then use what you've created in a way to continue to test theories, to test um, various different, you know, environments and things like that and, and opportunities. And it just blew my mind that the number of jobs out there that, you know, people talk about, you know, well, you know, 65% of, of the current kind of generation are going to do jobs that don't exist yet and all that kind of thing. And I think actually that's a tip of the iceberg. Um, whoever thought that, you know, being an influencer would be a job, but actually people make a yeah. very good living out of it. Um, and whether it's a sustainable one is another question. Uh, and I think that's a really valuable lesson for young people in that you know, careers for life maybe is as long gone, but the ability to flex and to reinvent yourself uh, and to, to iterate your own um, identity, if you like, around the needs at the time yeah, yeah. i think Open i think it's exciting oh hugely so and, and i think it forces us to ask some very big questions about and this is i suppose it's quite profound actually you know for each of us what are we contributing to the community that we're part of around us and i don't just mean sort of geographically community-wise mm -hmm. I mean, yes, of course, but also the different communities we're part of of you know, communities are professional ones with different um, groups of colleagues, both, you know, within our organisations and, you know, across organisations. And what are we contributing to the young people that we work with? What are we contributing to the, their families, their lives ahead? How, are we thinking short term with each of those communities, like immediate transactions? Or are we thinking about, OK, what can I do to support that group of people or to contribute somewhere there that will help long term? And they, they challenge the very foundational ideas upon which our own identities form. And I think that's a good thing. I think that takes us right back yeah. to some decent, proper moral questions about why we're all here, um, you know, in the world in the first place. And, and and the relationship then that we have with technology and making that happen and how can we best work together for, for all of the different interactions that we have. Really important. Mm. And great for our students to see us grappling with those things because that will help them to develop their own ideas and their thoughts about their own futures and what they do with their lives and you know that's that's ultimately what we're here for isn't it to support those young people absolutely yeah and it's interesting you mentioned family there because um you know one of the, we're both lucky enough to to hear john tate speak um last week at, at um, the lgfl conference and he was talking a lot there about that engagement with parents and, and helping parents to understand that they can help their children to progress and to learn because it's not about knowing all of the content yeah. um, and, it, and it's more about knowing how to help them and, and the different approaches, but putting that in a way that, that parents understand. And as, as we've said earlier on, you know, what, what we might see as being guaranteed knowledge, that's the way of doing it has totally changed over time. And, and I think, you know, maths gets a bit of a bad rap for this because people go, oh, they do it completely differently to the way I was taught to do it. And therefore, I can't do it anymore, it's which is obviously, yeah. yeah, yeah. But actually, the importance of working with our parents and our families and our wider community to to understand how our students are learning and, and why they're learning in the way that they're learning, I think is really important. Um, and I think that there's a lot of work to be done there in terms of helping those parents to understand, because 
there's endless work being put into interventions, recovery, catch up and all these kind of things um, that that's having a, a big impact on staff in school. Mm. It's having a big impact on cognitive load in school um, for pupils, because, you know, in some cases they're they're coming out of one lesson to go to a catch up session on another. And that breeds its own problems, you know. Um, and actually what we can do as a society to support parents in supporting young people, I think I think there's a huge amount of work that can be done there in terms of, of making education accessible again to those people who might may have switched off from it because it was in the past and do you know what maybe it's as simple as just going back to two really foundational fundamental questions with anything that is said by a, a child or in conversation between parent and child or teacher and child it's just asking two really basic things isn't it and you alluded to this a moment ago saying how do you know that mm. and why do you think that yeah. And and actually, those two things open up all kinds of conversation. And if you keep asking, you know, whatever they say next, say, that's interesting. Why do you think that? Not mm. that's right or that's wrong or I think this. It's like, OK, tell me more. Talk me through your thinking. Tell me why you think that. Tell me how you know that particular thing. Where's it come from? Why why did you take that? You know, how and why are just such yeah. underrated questions, aren't they? And that's it keep throwing those into every conversation and everyone in the conversation learns more and understands more and develops more of an empathy, both as groups of people, as well as for the, 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 the content, the topic that we happen to be talking about. Exactly. Yeah. You know, if, if you turn around to parents and say, help your child with retrieval practice, the vast majority are not going to have a clue. Yeah. But if you say, ask them how they know something and why they know that, or what they think of that and what their opinion is on it. And you've got a whole different outcome. I must admit, um, <laughs> I, I was undone by my own, um, yeah, my own approach, if you like, with my daughter. Luckily, she's 18 now and she's finished education and she's she's off and working. But I used to do the whole, you know, she'd come home from school and I'd be like, okay, w what did you learn at school today? And she'd tell me what she did. And I'd say, no, what did you learn? And she'd have to go and she'd, as kids do, you know, oh, right, okay, well, I learned this and I learned that. And we do the hows and the whys um, uh, until one day she flipped it on me and I came home from work and she went, oh, what did, what did, you, did you do at work today? And I was, I was like, this and the other. She said, but what did they learn? Oh, nice. Nice. And I was like, oh. Oh, she's good. And, she's good. Yeah. And I, that was a very uncomfortable moment. But boy, did it make me think. And, and and actually, it was a it was one of those moments where at the on, end of a long day, when you're tired after teaching, you don't always remember to reflect on what you've done. And just that one question from her did actually, as much as it pained me, <laughs> it did make me sit back and think about well, actually how well did they grasp what we'd gone through in those particular lessons during that day. Um, and, and prompted me to, I then created a little Google form to ask the students what they felt they'd learn as well. And, and it was quite eye opening. And, and there were some definite misconceptions in there that I wouldn't necessarily have found out about if my daughter hadn't have flipped my own little approach on me and, yeah, whipped the rug away from under me. So I've got a lot to thank her for. <laughs> I was going to say, she's good, isn't she? She's good. And, and what a brilliant way, what a brilliant thing for each of us to kind of almost pledged to ourselves to finish each day saying, what have I learnt today? Like every day, whatever we've been doing, 
whoever yeah. we've been with, what have, you know, not as you rightly say, not what have I done today, but what have I learned today? And if we can't answer that, we need to refine how we go into the next day so that we're clearer yeah. on the answer to that the next evening. Yeah, because we, we can't talk about being lifelong learners if we're not walking the walk. Absolutely. Fiona, it's, it's been great chatting. I could literally talk to you for... It's been brilliant. So thank you so much for, for giving up your time this morning. I really it's do appreciate it. Privilege to chat with you, Darren. Thank you so much. It's for been fantastic. Me. Thanks ever so much. And thanks everyone for, for watching and listening. And we'll see you on the next episode. Take care, everyone. Bye.